Sun Science, during the summer solstice, you're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. This week marks the summer solstice, the northern hemisphere's longest day of the year. As we reach the solstice on Wednesday, we'll take a look at the science of the sun, from early observations of our sun to new probes exploring our closest star. And we'll learn how scientists utilize total solar eclipses to better understand the sun. Then, how does a Martian rock get its name? As robots like NASA's Perseverance mission continue to chart the surface of Mars, scientists are tasked with naming these new places. We'll hear about what goes into a Martian name and what Percy is up to these days on the Red Planet. From the sun to Mars, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. Tomorrow is the summer solstice, the time when the sun is at its northernmost point in the sky and the northern hemisphere's longest day of the year. It's also the official start of summer in this hemisphere, meaning blazing hot temperatures are on the way. And this time of year, the sun's own weather is quite volatile, and scientists are paying close attention to what it throws at us, which could affect things here on Earth, like our power grid. Here to talk more about the science of the sun is NASA heliophysicist Kelly Corrick. So we've got the the solstice coming up. This is a good time to talk about sun science. Um, I'm going to start with what I think is a simple question, but we'll have a complex answer. Um, What is the sun? (laughs) What is it actually made of? That's a great question. So the sun is our closest star, um, and it's mainly made of hydrogen and a little bit of helium, and then a little bit of all the other elements. So a little bit of carbon, a little bit of nitrogen, um, all the way up to some iron as well. Um, so that the uh, sun out there that you see every day is the day star. And and what do we know of of its formation, uh, Kelly? How did the sun come to be? Obviously, it's very important for us here on Earth. Um, but where did it come from? Great question. So the sun is a a star, and how that formed was there was a first generation of stars after the Big Bang, um, and they uh, lived their lives and ended up as as kind of dust or cosmic uh, cosmic stuff. Uh, around. And then at some point in time, um, there was a movement in this area that we live in now in this this edge of the spiral galaxy where the sun is. Um, and it started turning material or, or twisting it around a kind of a centralized location. And as things coalesced into that center star, um, that's when the star started forming. And as it got to a certain mass, it was actually then able to create fusion, pushing those atoms together and making that fuel in the center that makes it burn so brightly and for so long. Um, and then after that, all the planets formed around it kind of in a, in a, similar, uh, in a similar fashion. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it is vitally important to, to our solar system and to us here. What was kind of the, what's the history of our understanding of the sun? When did, when did some of the first astronomers look up and, and really start taking a, um, a critical look at, at, at the most important star in our world? Exactly. I think it's always been there, right? Uh, as long as humans have existed, uh, the bright yellow ball in the sky has existed. Um, and so folks have studied it for millennia, for as long as, as humans have been around, um, both in recorded history and recorded in things um, such as the monuments that folks built um, to mark these things like solstices and, and equinoxes. Um, in order to tell things like when to plant or maybe when to move to warmer or colder climates, 
um, you know, based on the year. So I think we've always looked up um, and again, have for uh, throughout history, uh, use the sun as a timekeeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a bit about the solstice, which is coming up this week. Um, what What is the solstice and, and why is this something that, that we do pay attention to? The solstice is when, viewed from the equator, the sun is at its northernmost point in the sky and the highest uh, highest in the sky. Um, so it's going to take a, a long time. And this is when you're in the northern hemisphere, you're going to get the longest day of the year. And uh, in the sum, in the southern hemisphere, you're going to get the shortest uh, day of the shortest day. So, um, and then opposite when you go into the December uh, the December solstice. We're taking this time to kind of look at some sun science um, during the solstice, which is a great alliteration. Um, <laughs> why is it so important that we do study the sun? The 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 study of the sun is is heliophysics. Is that correct? The study of the sun is heliophysics, and. It is so important because we are living with a very active star. And as our uh, as our society gets more and more dependent upon technology, um, the sun and her natural 11 year cycles um, ends up uh, conflicting with our uh, our technology. So the uh, space weather and the ability for the sun to um, throw off these billions of tons of material, these 80 million school buses racing at us at a million miles an hour, um, that she starts throwing these these um, things off uh, three to five times, it can be three to five times a day during this maximum time that we're coming up to. Um, and that can interfere with power grids, that can interfere with astronauts' sa- uh, spacewalks, with launching of satellites, um, which we do much more regularly than we've ever had uh, previously. Um, as well as uh, create beautiful aurora. So there's many different th- reasons why we kind of need to figure this out so that we can save our power grids and uh, make sure that our assets in- is. Mm-hmm. You mentioned three to five times a day. Um, you also use the term space weather. I'm, I'm wondering if it's much like terrestrial weather here where um, scientists are able to forecast this activity and, and get a bit of a heads up so that it doesn't impact or we can prepare our power grids or our astronauts um, for for this solar weather event. And that is our goal is to be able to predict it. But um, we're probably where terrestrial weather was around 20 years ago. So we're still in um, the beginning phases of being able to predict um, the space weather. We have some uh, we have some decent techniques, but they are not um, they don't forecast quite as well as we would like them to. Uh, so that's what scientists are really uh, all over the world working on is making sure that we have those predictive capabilities so that we are um, we can save things like power grids and, and astronauts. And, and while the sun is quite far away, although here in Florida, um, uh, we might argue that we feel a little bit closer to the sun <laughs> than the rest of the planet. Um do you have kind of a lead time or are there observations of these solar weather events that, you know, these operators of power grids or 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 satellites or or NASA when planning spacewalks has a bit of lead time uh, to prepare for, for these possible solar events? Definitely. Um, we do have some lead time. Um, we will see things go off on the sun um, because we have multiple different modelers of um, different different modes of being able to observe the sun. We have a heliophysics a system observatory. So there are uh, over 20 uh, different satellites that monitor the sun. Um, and uh, so we see something coming, knowing if it's going to hit. Um, we do have satellites at the L1 point, which is the point about a million miles ahead of us between us and the sun. 
And when those satellites experience the space weather, we have about an hour um, before it comes. So that's not a lot of time to save things, um, but it's uh, it's what we have right now. Mm-hmm. What is going to change um, in the future to bring that forecasting to the era that we are here terrestrial? You mentioned we're about two decades behind when you compare it to you know Earth weather forecasting. Uh, what is needed to get us into this new era of solar forecasting or space weather forecasting, I should say? Space weather forecasting. And we are really um, working on it at a, a whole g- a government level as well as uh, the commercial uh, sector together um, working on this problem. And part of it is uh, understanding the science. So for for NASA, it's looking at new satellites such as the uh, geodynamics um, constellation and uh, dynamic which will give us more information about how our Earth uh, reacts to uh, to these solar storms uh, to help us better understand it, um, as well as some of the other science uh, payloads that are going up in the next uh, few years. We'll be able to see a lot of different uh, vantage points from the sun and uh, be able to better predict the space weather. Kelly, one of those satellites that, that I got to see launch here in Florida, which ironically was in the middle of the night, was the Parker Solar Probe. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about uh, some of the things that, that scientists like yourself are, are learning from these recent missions that have been launched uh, specifically to observe the sun? Yes, and Parker Solar Probe is, is near and dear to my heart. I worked on that and did also see that, that beautiful nighttime launch. And um, so from Parker... What we're learning is we're actually going into that corona, the hot outer atmosphere of the sun, and figuring out how that energy comes out as this solar wind, this constant wind that is um, that is blowing off of the sun. And that helps us understand the transport of things from uh, the sun to the earth. And uh, those things can be solar wind, but those things also uh, end up being those coronal mass ejections, which are part of space weather um, or uh, or energetic particles that also come um, that also come along with space weather. So Parker Solar Probe is up close and personal with that uh, and able to uh, able to help as well as um, sister missions such as Solar Orbiter, um, which is close and coming a little bit out of the plane of the ecliptic to see the sun kind of uh, from the a little bit more from the top um, to give us a different vantage point. Again, to see the 3D structure. These things are very large. And when you only have one point of measurement, um, it's really hard to to see something in three dimensions, right? So we're trying uh, to see them with a, a variety of satellites and being able to get the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And and I'm assuming that what we learn from, from Parker Solar Probe and the, and the Solar Orbiter will help build into those models of space weather forecasting, right? Definitely. This all feeds into the into the modeling and the understanding. Um, and then eventually the operations um, will be taken over uh, and, uh, you know, operationalized at how to predict how to predict the uh, solar storms. And finally, let's talk a bit about um, a phenomenon that uh, that quite a few people have had had the chance to observe, especially in the past few years. That's a solar eclipse, a total solar eclipse. Um, I know that's just kind of your area of study. Um, while it's really cool for, for us um, to take a look at it, how do scientists like yourself capitalize on, on events like solar eclipses? So solar eclipses have been used um, for the couple, last couple of hundred years uh, for a variety of scientific purposes, um, from uh, testing theories of relativity, um, about light bending around uh, gravitational sources like the sun, um, to uh, discovery of helium. Uh, the element helium um, in this in some of the spectra as as you watch the sun being eclipsed 
Um, so there has been a lot of science done uh, throughout history with eclipses, and NASA has uh, five different experiments um, that will be uh, done during the upcoming 23 and 24 solar eclipses. Um, and some will fly on airplanes, some will uh, be done uh, by bouncing radio waves around and um, understanding how our Earth's atmosphere reacts to that sudden day-night uh, transition. Mm -hmm. And then finally, Kelly, um, we really should not look up with uh, the naked eye at the sun. What's, what's a good way if uh, some amateur scientists like myself want to uh, observe the sun during the solstice or, or maybe during these upcoming uh, solar eclipses? Great. That's a great question. So yeah, safety is first at NASA. And um, what we can do is we have special solar filters. These are not sunglasses. Um, and you can uh, find these um, online. Uh, they are, uh, but you do have to make sure that they're ISO certified. They are much darker. You should not actually be able to see anything but the sun through them. So if you're looking around at even the light bulbs, you should really not see anything. Um, and other ways is to actually create pinhole projectors. Um, so you can create pinholes by poking a small hole through like a sheet of aluminum and then projecting the sun at your back, projecting um, the sun's picture onto the ground then through that pinhole. And so you'd be able to actually view the sun that way. You can even use your hands um, in some ways to uh, basically crossing your fingers and just allowing a little light to uh, to go to the ground using them as pinholes. You can use a colander, like a kitchen colander, um, as a way to use that as well to see uh, to see the sun um, through pinholes. So those are all ways you can observe it. And um, we really do invite you in this heliophysics big year, since the sun is having a really big year from the beginning of this eclipse in October uh, to Parker's closest approach in, in December of 2024. We really, in, it's a global celebration of the sun and making sure that everyone knows they belong. Um, they belong here and that they should be um, looking at the sun. That was NASA heliophysicist Kelly Corrick. More information on the big year in sun science is available on NASA's website. Visit solarsystem.nasa.gov. Still to come, how do the rocks on Mars get their names? The process of naming the geological features on the red planet. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. How does a Martian rock get its name? As robots like NASA's Perseverance mission continue to chart the surface of Mars, scientists are tasked with naming these new places. One of those scientists is Amy Williams. She's an astrobiologist at the University of Florida and a scientist on NASA's Perseverance mission. She joins us now to talk about the naming process and give us an update on the rover's Red Planet Romp. Amy, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. It's so much fun to come back and chat with you every time. Oh, it's my pleasure to have you on, Amy. Um, we're going to talk about something really interesting, at least to me. Um, you've been on the show. We've talked about all the places that that these these Mars rovers are going but all these places, they have unique names, um, and I never or I never knew why or how they got their names. So, all of these places that 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 Perseverance is exploring have unique names. How do these names come to be? Great question. So, um, some of the names for larger features are official, and all of that is controlled by uh, this this uh, group, um, the um, IAU. And they are the the group that 
controls, you know, how we name things on other planetary bodies. So unfortunately, Amy's crater doesn't exist yet. Maybe one day it will. <laughs> um, so there are all these rules for naming things officially. So craters that are bigger than like 60 kilometers, they're named after famous scientists or famous um, science fiction authors. Um, craters smaller than that size, um, they need to be named after towns with populations less than 100,000 people. So um, we're trying to give names to these these locations on another world. We're giving them terrestrial names. Um, and we have to do it because I don't, it, it doesn't make sense for me to say that crater over there. No, not that one, but the other one, right? We should give names to things. Um, but when it gets down to like the nitty gritty, like an individual rock, um, the IAU doesn't con control that level or they don't worry about that level. Um, and so then it comes down to the rover teams and the explorers to give unofficial names. So, um, for example, uh, the big mountain in the middle of Gale Crater where Curiosity exploring, its official name is Aeolus Mons. Um, but its informal name that the rover team gave it is um, Mount Sharp, um, named for a, a, a famous scientist. And so um, we use these official and unofficial names interchangeably in some cases. When you get down to like the rock level um, with the rovers, we have suites of names that we we use. And so the, the history of that's kind of interesting. I think um, early on, like with Pathfinder and Sojourner, you know, we were sort of shooting from the hip, uh, giving names like cartoon character names to the rocks. And, and we weren't roving around in a way that we would need, you know, thousands of names uh, like we are now. And so uh, we, we've planned ahead once we had the Mars Exploration rovers. Uh, we've been planning ahead with names. And so what we do now is have um, these uh, quadrangles. They're uh, 1.2 kilometer square areas that we uh, put a, basically a grid over our landing area and where we think we're going to explore. And then we choose themes uh, for names. So for Perseverance, we're using national parks. So we're in the Rocky Mountain National Park quadrangle right now where we're exploring near um, Belva Crater. And so the the name Belva is something that did come from the the IAU. This is um, a, a crater that's big enough. It's it's um, named after uh, Belva Lockwood, I believe, which was a, a, a uh, she was a suffragist in the 1800s, uh, one of the first women to run for president. Um, so we have like this like this history of names of people of places from all over the world. So, you know, we have the Rocky Na Mountain National Park that's represented right now in our quadrangle. Um, but we have had themes from all over the world, um, from South America. You know, right now we're in a Brazilian quadrangle uh, with curiosity. Um, one of my favorites is the Glen Torridon area we were exploring and we use a bunch of Scottish names. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to tap in all of these different uh, cultures, backgrounds, resources, people, um, so that the names, the unofficial names we're giving are are representative of humanity as a whole. Mm -hmm. I, I was reading about some of those earlier names. Um, you mentioned cartoon characters. They're like Yogi Bear and Scooby Doo, right? I mean, it, it really yep. a sign of the time that of when it actually landed, which is which is really cool. So kind of like a cultural time capsule, uh, so to speak. Absolutely. Um, uh, selfish question: uh, How small of a rock would you name uh, for a uh, space podcast host, if that's even uh, in in the cards there? <laughs> so uh, when we get Amy's crater, then we can we can talk. About <laughs> okay. Well, so yeah. you can. 
You can almost claim one. We have a Burns formation, but it's not spelled the same way. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. That's close enough. You get your rock first. That's you, you're doing all the work there. And and you mentioned this, Amy. You know, this has got to be something that helps with the team, right? When when you're when you're kind of deciding where the uh, the rover is going to go, it helps for the team to be able to say we're going to go to that particular rock that has a name, not Rock zero two five four four one two, right? I mean. It's, it's going to help with 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 navigating the rover, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what we do on a on a planning basis is, you know, we we look at the images of the landscape around us. Say we want to drive to the northwest, um, so we'll pick out targets of interest, and we do give them numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but during the planning cycle, we actually give them those numbered locations that we want to explore names mm-hmm. from our list from our thematic. A, a group for that that quadrangle. So yeah, we um, we do make the transition from numbers to names, and I can tell you, there's plenty of times on planning. I'm like, all right, was that zero one two five zero one two six? Like, which one is is Yogi Bear now? You know, and <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, and it, it gives us the shared language to describe not only locations in real time when we're trying to do exploration, but to be able to refer back to them is you know, really important. And so it does get to be a lot of names, but there is a way to at least kind of track this in our naming scheme. And, you know, we have these themes, so it, it makes a lot of sense. Like, okay, these these all sound like words from Shenandoah National Park. So I know we were in this particular region of the Delta Front when we were exploring this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's got to give you a sense of place, right? That this is an actual geological location that, that you are exploring, not some dots on a scatter plot, right? Yeah, yeah, it does give you like a familiarity and especially for some of these locations that some of us have done field work in, it's really cool to name places, you know, after something that you might have a strong, you know, personal connection to um, in the field from from your field experience or, or just a even a, just a trip that you went on. One of our first um, areas we explored in Curiosity was Pahrump Hills. And um, that's, you know, an area out near Death Valley. That was one of my first field trips as a as a geology major. And so that has a place close to my heart anyway, as far as a really fun field trip with my colleagues and also now a suite of names on Mars that I have a strong connection to as well. Fascinating stuff. Um, we also talk a lot about the location of Perseverance, uh, which is Jezero Crater. Where does that name come from? Awesome. Awesome question. So um, Jezero, again, another official name from the IAU, um, it actually means the word lake in different Slavic languages. Um, and so Jezero, the name, it came from a, a specific Bosnian town, um, but that word does mean lake. And it's great because we know that there was a crater lake at, at some point in the past here. Perfect. Well, let, let's talk a bit about um, what's happening in Jezero Crater and what Perseverance is up to these days. It's been a while since we've had you on the show. So um, where is it now? What What is the rover exploring? Yeah, yeah, we could get caught up. Um, so we completed sort of the Delta Front exploration and we drove up onto it and we're calling the upper part sort of the upper fan because as we explore, our understanding of the geologic environment has evolved and we now recognize that some things look like they might have formed underwater and been a delta and some areas look like they formed above water so it might be like an alluvial fan and and these kinds of transitionary environments are are very common so we're we're changing our language as our understanding evolves of this this area that we're exploring so we're up on what we call the upper fan um and we're 
working to complete that part of our exploration and continue moving towards the crater rim. Uh, we've recently sampled um, in the what we're calling the curvilinear unit, which looks like it might have been a, a river system or a fluvial system in the past. So we collected a sample um, called uh, melon there. And then um, we've been working to collect this um, conglomerate sample. So we want to get a conglomerate is a rock made up of other little bits of rock. It's a sedimentary rock. And we're trying to collect a sample. And these things have been kind of friable and really fighting us to get a sample in the tube. Um, so hopefully we'll have uh, positive news on that soon that we will hopefully have a sample collected of this really cool conglomerate we've been driving by next to Belva Crater. Um, and why is that so important to, to get your hands on that? Does, does Do the layers show kind of different points in time? Is that why it's so interesting to geologists like yourself? So on the scale that our sample is collected at, we we won't necessarily be able to tell stratigraphic time in that, but you're actually your point towards time is is right because one of the things that we hope to do is by getting these chunks of rock that uh, all together make up the rest of the conglomerate, each of these chunks of rock came from upstream in the, the watershed that fed into Jezero. And so what we're hoping, yeah, you're following it, right? We're hoping to get these chunks of rock from these different areas in the watershed outside of Jezero. And you, uh, depending on what type of minerals are preserved in those rock fragments, you might actually be able to do, um, to get an absolute age on those. So it give you sort of some constraints on how old is the material that was weathering from outside Jezero and being uh, brought into Jezero by those rivers towards that lake. Um, so it doesn't give you a, a date for when they were deposited, but it tells you how old those materials were that were being weathered in. So that's what part of why we wanted to, to collect that sample. We tried really hard multiple times. Oh, that's <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. And so is, is it just kind of breaking apart? Is it is it very fragile? Is that why you're having a difficult time getting it in the, the sample tube? Yeah. You know, sometimes we we get materials that just are, are really friable or they're very poorly cemented at this point. I mean, if they've been exposed for billions of years, some of them can be really fragile. Um, so it just depends on the rock. And, um, you know, if we keep looking for something that looks a little more cohesive, we might have success in getting a sample in the tube. And of course, we want to get samples that are scientifically valuable for our sample return. So we want to get as much of that tube filled with sample as we can to make it the best possible suite of samples to return to Earth. We've got about a minute left, uh, Amy. What's ahead for um, for the Perseverance rover? Where is it heading to? Is it heading to Amy's boulder? <laughs> oh, man, one day, I hope so. Um, so we are going to complete the upper fan campaign, um, you know, in, in the next many months and then move towards what we call the marginal unit. So this is the margin between the crater rim and the delta fan itself. And it's got a really unique signature from orbit. It's um, it seems like it's unique texturally and mineralogically. And so we want to explore why it looks that way and what can it tell us about the habitability of Jezero. Mm -hmm. Looking forward to, to hearing about that. We'll have you back on, on the show when that happens. Uh, we always be with Amy Williams. She is a scientist on NASA's Perseverance mission and also an astrobiologist at the University of Florida. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit wmfe.org space. 
Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance is from LaToya Dennis, and our intern is Amy Diaz. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.